This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jennifer Sperry Steinorth, author of a graphic poem called Her Read. You know, in some ways, sustaining this narrative and trying to take it into new directions, you know, the book was my partner in that, right? We took turns leading. We'll be back with Jennifer Sperry Steinorth after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is poet and essayist Jennifer Sperry Steinorth. Her books include Her Read and Awake with Nine Shades, which was a finalist for Forward Review's Best of the Indie Press Award. Steinorth is an educator, interdisciplinary artist, and licensed builder. Her work has appeared in the Beloit Poetry Journal, Black Warrior Review, the Cincinnati Review, and Tri-Quarterly, among others. Her graphic poem called Her Read is as much art as it is poetry. It is a collage poem, and to make it, Steinorth took an old book called The Meaning of Art by Herbert Reed, and via erasure and addition, created a book-length poem refashioning the patriarchal story of art, women, and women making art. We began the interview with me asking Jennifer Sperry Steinorth to talk about her read. So I'll say what it is, which is um, I found a book that was published in 1951. It's the, it was this lovely little red hardback cloth bound uh, with very simple modernist type across the, the front in black that said the meaning of art, Herbert Reed, and it has a little star on the top. And uh, I picked it up and I thought, here's this lovely book. I will destroy this. <laughs> and so what, what I have done is physically altered the book. I've stitched into that cloth cover. I've put pieces of leather and embroidery over some of the words that were imprinted so that the title changes to from uh, the meaning of art by Herbert Reed to just her read or her read and then added a little uh, bit of patchwork that says uh, a graphic poem some of that's embroidered some of that is paint on fabric and then the interior of the book, it begins with pages that have been altered with white correction fluid. And as the book progresses, there are little bits of ink that show up in progressively larger amounts. And then some stitching appears, uh, some pages are stitched shut, some words get cut out and 
moved and then later in the book it becomes much more collagist where there is graphic images in color over the words there are whole pages of text that are composed of words that have been exacto knifed out like with a scalpel and rearranged that is more towards the end of the text how did you get into this sort of collage erasure type of work with books that already existed. How did you get into that and how did it evolve into this book that you've published? And was it, were you searching for a narrative or is there something else about this art? I have been fascinated with erasure and I was stuck. It was the summer of 2016. I was enraged with things I was seeing on the big political stage and it was resonating deeply with things I was at that time experiencing in my personal life. And I hit a big writer's block. And yet I had all this, you know, pent up stuff. And I had been interested in erasure. And so when I, I, I saw a bunch of books being discarded, selling for, you know, a, a dollar each at this library, I knew that a thing that I liked about erasure is the possibility of being like the constraint of it for one, right? You're using somebody else's language. You're confining yourself to what's already there, predominantly in the order in which it appears. And then it's also a dialogue. And so when I saw this text, the meaning of art written by this man, I felt like what kind of gall does it take, right? To unironically title something, the meaning of art. And I just wanted to pick a fight with it. And so a thing that I love about erasure is that it's the work exists in dialogue. You automatically have this dramatic tension between the text that is made and the text that was before. And so originally I only set out to use the white correction fluid, but the book is 266 pages long. Um, my book is not quite that long. I, it gets edited down. But I was kind of aware that if I was only using whiteout and that was my only method, it could get dull. And, uh, and I also would encounter problems in the text where I could see a possibility that the rules I had given myself wasn't going to let me. Like the possibility was so compelling that I wanted to find a new, like a way to break a rule. And so um, that involved at first just some basic lines uh, drawn in ink to like direct the eye in the way I wanted it to go and eventually evolved into full-blown like figurations that were meted out over the very intentionally over the pages. I also needed to obscure the illustrations that appear in the source text. So there are black and white images of paintings that Herbert Reed is talking about in his survey of art. And I didn't want to, you know, I, I wanted to converse with those paintings, but alter them such that I wouldn't have copyright issues. So there was, you know, a lot of it was like, how can I prob like solve this problem in the form that work, you know, ups the art. And how about the search for narrative within this form? You know, different narratives come and go. I would say multiple women speaking. The narrative is more about, I would say, the dialogue into 
a sort of talking into the tension created between the two speakers um, and the context that's sort of set up of, you know, millennia of women being portrayed by art, but seldom being the artists themselves. And so to me, the narrative is the utterance of the female voice in the context of the larger narrative of women being both erased, um, their voices erased um, while on display. I don't know if that works as, you know, a strict narrative, but that's, that was kind of the, you know, the movement that I was working with. You had to deal with what you had. So you have, you know, in their references to, I think, the ancient Greeks and the names of artists and various people. I want to just read, I'm assuming this was the, the preface of the book, and you whited it out and it says, face, this book as a road or passage from what is. I hope for the sake of completeness. With the listener, in the present, I make for clarity and dot, dot, dot. So that's just an example of how you took what was there and made it your own. So what I read is maybe three sentences. And this was a, a paragraph that took up maybe a third of the page. When you looked at something like that, how long did it take you to think about which words you wanted to keep? Yeah, some pages took a long time. There was a spot I hit in the text that I put it down and kept coming back and didn't know what to do with it for months and months and months. So, so much of the language is very abstract, Latinate, heady language. And so... I would look for words that I liked. I wouldn't let myself read the text in the way that it was written. I scanned the text as, as if it was raw material that I was looking, you know, like looking at bolts of fabric in a fabric store. Like the material, the words were material, potential material, not situated in sentences. But I would also sort of start at the top and like scan looking for like beginning a sort of a sentence or carrying over from the page before because um, unlike some erasures this book isn't uh, discrete poems one after the other that are contained on a page it the sentence rolls across from one page to another like what you just read you could read it the dot 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 uh, I make for clarity and dot, 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 you turn the page, it says, um, resurrect Francesca. So that could be the end of the sentence if the reader wanted to read it that way. I would kind of look and see I, if I picked up a thread and found words along the way, did I like where that thread is going? I, and I would also go very slowly, especially in the beginning as I was trying to find my way. An example of a sentence that might give a little sense of a few of the things, maybe the tone and where you're getting at. Here's a few. I'm a distortion of what we picture as human eye art. Only the free create the imp. Any man responds to a pleasurable discomfort. The opposite of I is equally rare. To form is to long. 
she becomes a willing symbol of desire reduced to ornamentation. And you list some of the ornamentation there. So you definitely get the sense that you're writing about like the subjugation of women. You're putting women at the center. You talk about gaslighting and um, pain and the distortion, violence, wounds. So there's a clearly a theme, which seems like it must have been so hard to find. I mean, obviously that's what you were thinking about. So your lens was looking at it that way, but keeping that up, I'm just wondering if you can talk about it. So I think thematically I was responding to what I see, what I saw and found. And, you know, oftentimes I would think like, oh, I want the line to finish this way, right? I'm looking for the words that are going to finish the sentence that I've written in my head, but that sentence, those words weren't often there. And so, you know, it's, it was continually sort of jumping through hoops and then surprising, right? The book presenting other alternatives that then took me into places that, you know, in some ways sustaining this narrative and trying to take it into new directions, you know, the book was my partner in that, right? We took turns leading, you know, I might want it to go one way, but then material gave me something else. Um, I'd also look for patterns. So if there were certain words that were coming up over and over again, like, okay, how can I use in this section, Reed is talking about Ruskin. So that became the R in Ruskin became our, O-U-R, right? Our, so it became our skin. Um, our skin does this, our skin does that. Because I saw Ruskin over and over again. And later Tolstoy is being talked about and that became to toy. Um, we are to toy with this, we are to toy with that. But keeping the narrative interesting, prolonging it over the length of the book, I kind of had to keep diving down and trying to find sometimes a new voice would come up or sometimes a little bit of narrative would emerge for a bit and then die away. Um, and I kind of had to make peace with that, that there was going to be little stories inside of stories that might not get resolved, but together would hopefully form a cohesive, semi-cohesive whole. And I'd always keep going back to the beginning and like reading forward as I moved ahead. And I pretty much moved sequentially. I did not jump around in the book as I worked. I started from the beginning where you read actually. There must be some alchemy also going on because as you said, when you picked up this book, I think you originally found it for like a dollar at a, at a thrift store or something. You were saying it was 2016. You were just enraged by all these things. You were having writer's block, but you had a narrative in your mind. You did. I mean, clearly you're, you're thinking about pain and art and violence and gaslighting and I'm sure what was going on politically as well. And so I just wonder if you felt some element of alchemy or magic as you were going through to, to root this out. Yeah. No, it did feel like magic. It felt like um, as writers, we can have this vision that seems wildly preposterous, but we can see it, right? And then you have to kind of surrender to it, right? This idea that of like the thing you want to make, you can kind of maybe sort of see it out on the horizon as this ethereal thing, but you have to you have to bring it into the world. And like 
it's terrifying. It can be terrifying. So, you know, there's very much an active surrender, I think, with any form of making and like, you know, getting out of your own way and just looking at the thing you're making and responding to the materials and responding to you know, the other stories that are out in the air, right? Every, every story is in conversation with so many other stories. Paintings are in conversation, like it's all this continuum. Uh, so, you know, not everybody is working with physical material, like words already on a page, um, but everybody is working with all this language that we all share and the different things that it means depending on the time and context. It, all, it also seems a little like tarot, right? They, the cards, you know, you, you have random distribution of cards and then you, you know, you see what you see. Or Adrian Rich says, we see what we see and seeing is changing. Like something happens when you kind of let go and look, I think. I think the story can arise that way. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you have a favorite find or line in this or page or section? This comes almost to the very end. It's sort of um, just before a final uh, sort of refrain that comes at the end. It's just before that. And I realize this is where the book become is very much collagist. So at this point, I'm cutting words out, excising them from pages I have removed from the book and putting them in the order that I want them to be. Um, I, they, the speaker has more agency I, at this point in the text. I think of the book as progressing where um, as I am learning the text and growing in what I'm capable of doing with the material, um, the speakers' voices are also increasing in agency. And so I, I think this is evident in the construction as well, in this collage method where the words are being cut out and able to be rearranged in the order the speaker wants. In this book, to get my, many of the mays had to be restructured. And the imps freed from impressionist impressions and from painters, paintings, and paints came our pain. In this book, every she is a construct, a remodel, a reconstruction, a symbol born of destruction. 
Likewise, each her derives from here and there, where and whether, either, rather, and other. And on the other hand becomes her hand, floating above her hand. Oh, her hands, a stone, this branch, hand in hand, by her own hand she is becoming. And yet, by my own hands, and this raw biopsy I confess, a few she's carving and cutting does not satisfy. No, not when there are other, other, others we have yet to see, to hear. Oh, love, would you would add your own mark here and every other, other where. So when you see the page, the pronouns she and her are composed of individual letters cut out and glued onto the page to physically make, to physically reconstruct, to get that pronoun because the pronouns, those pronouns don't appear in the text. So I'm thinking about those pronouns not appearing and also the fluidity, wonderful fluidity that we're seeing with pronouns that are being um, expanded. And I really wanted the book, even though it's set up somewhat with this binary antagonism to move past a binary and acknowledge the opening of space that is, that is beyond this, uh, this binary system. So that was a page that I felt like worked that as, you know, a bit, which made me happy to create that space. And there's also a physical um, space where it says, would you would add your own mark here? There's a big white, uh, a circle that's left empty that uh, I don't know if the reader will read it this way, but I, I wanted to be like, look, here's space, like, please make your own marks. The word she didn't appear in the book because I think in the whole book, he only featured one female artist in the meaning of art. Yes, yes. Um, and that's not until the third edition. So I happened to pick up the third edition. And uh, in that one, we Barbara Hepworth appears. She's the last artist, but she's um, the only one in any future editions as well that gets mentioned, even though this the book is still being printed, but yeah, in the first, for the first 20 years, no female artists were included. And I don't know that there is, there's one she pronoun that appears in the section with Barbara Hepworth. I think it's the only one I haven't gone back to just verify. There might be one where he's talking about the Virgin Mary in a painting or something like this, but I kind of, I kind of doubt it. I am curious about how the art evolved because as you were saying in the beginning, like the preface that I read, it's, it's really just pure, like white out where you have the words, but as you get deeper and deeper into the book, it's like you couldn't handle the constraint of that. I mean, I think you were also talk, talking about like how it could get monotonous for the reader, but what mm -hmm. you started doing was like some pages, you you put color behind the words. 
by to erase them and like circled the ones in white and you put lines to attach them. Um, in some you, um, actually have like the, the, the form of a female body in one color or a lightning bolt in another color. Um, and then you, you started, as you said, like you couldn't really handle anymore what was on the page. So you cut out words from others to start making the voice stronger and stronger. So it's like this, this starting from this amorphous female to like a much stronger presence and voice on the page. And I'm wondering if you want to say anything more about that. I had already done a little bit of begun to physically manipulate the pages and felt like there are things that need to be said that I do, I'm no longer willing to rely on what exactly is there. So I did limit myself to using only words that I could physically excise from a single copy, the same copy I was working with um, and rearrange. So I, I only used language that were from pages that I physically removed and then mined for parts. I started to think of those pages that I had gotten rid of and were excising words from as my Frankenstein pages because I I felt like I was mining bits of the dead and putting them together, composing them to make this body whole. Just thinking that, just like having this thought of like, oh, this is these are my Frankenstein pages made me just start to think about Mary Shelley and the fact that Frankenstein is her child, right? The book is her creation, her, her mind's child. Um, as the book went along, there are multiple places where I start to break the rules and I would, you know, maybe bend a rule a little bit and then break it completely and sort of from there on out, that rule would be broken and I would be able to like that would just become another tool um, the ability for example to use color as I was learning how to manipulate the book I also believe the book teaches the reader how to read it I'm assuming that you couldn't do this on the first try that because you're using the actual book itself you didn't go through the first copy that you had and just nail it so how did you go about doing this? Like how many copies did you go through and what did you do to maybe not go through the book as fast? Maybe you made copies of the pages. I don't know. Yeah. At first I did not let myself make copies of the pages because I really wanted to commit and something about committing to the choices I'd made forced me into, it became another constraint, right? Um, but I did move very slowly through the process. So I would, I would work sl uh, one page at a time. I wouldn't work one page at a time and finish it. I would work many pages, taking a little bit of the words off and then double back and take more off and like take my time figuring out what choices I was going to make. Uh, so I've actually progressed through the whole book the first time through thinking that that was going to be it. It wasn't until I was into the last, really the last eight or nine pages that I was like, this is, I really have to make the book again. There are things that I can do so much better. And also when I really started physically manipulating pages, some things just 
got so tattered that I felt like I couldn't, you know, I wanted to make it again. So I made the second book and I thought that would be it. But a, a problem happened between making the first book and making the second book, which was that uh, in the first book I had white, I used white correction fluid and then partway through drafting it, which took about four years, I discovered buff colored correction fluid, which I think is used for manila folders. Um, and I'm like, this is fabulous. Now I have white and I have this like parchment color and I can use these two colors to create different patterns. Um, and then ink little bits of like black or red or pink ink, um, peppered those pages in that first version. Uh, but then when I went to make the second version to do it again, the buff colored correction fluid was discontinued and I tried madly to find to buy up uh, boxes of this fluid and like put orders in and the orders like disappeared uh so I was like okay I have, what do I do I now this book is due and I don't know how to remake it and I discovered that um alcohol-based markers these artist pens that I had found worked really well just over the white correction fluid. And so I really liked the parchment color, but I couldn't find a marker that emulated exactly that color. So then I, I was like, well, here's one that's more of like bare skinned flesh tone. And here's one that's more of a, you know, and I started playing with all these different colors. So a whole world of possibilities opened because, you know, Whiteout decided to stop making buff colored correction fluid uh, during the pandemic. I, I don't know, maybe it's back now. I ended up needing to make a third book and it was kind of excruciating, but it, it turned out better. And uh, I'm kind of secretly glad that I had to jump through the hoops one more time. So one of the questions that is brought up in the introduction by Eleanor Wilner is this idea of ownership and playing with ownership. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Yes. Yeah, so that question of ownership is so important. You know, who, who gets to speak when we say a body of work, we assume the body belongs to the artist, but inside that body of work are many bodies often representing people and ideas that are not the artist's property. We go to pieces of art and novels to learn about, not necessarily about the artist or the writer, but to learn about, you know, to, to experience the art. Um, and sometimes for them to tell us about what they're talking about, right, inform us, you know, and, and then this, the erasure itself is an act of appropriation. And to me, the act of erasure is appropriate to the subject of this exploration, right? Which it's interrogating erasure. It's interrogating the erasure of women in the Western canon uh, uh, of artists. It's also interrogating the kinds of erasure that happens when someone uses someone else's body um, to say who they are. Right. So we have all around us 
are physical representations of what women are supposed to look like. And, you know, we can't really get away, even if we don't spend any time in museums. The images that are in museums impact the images that are in commercials that, you know, are everywhere. I, I did enter that sort of appropriative space, wanting to be mindful that I was taking somebody else's work and, you know, wildly manipulating it for my own purposes. The book, I, I think, begins in a rage. Um, it's a contained, rational voice, but there's rage and, and does, I hope, move toward grace and love and wanting to be inclusive of all, including the Herbert Reeds of the world. And he's actually kind of a cool guy. Do you feel like it, it all is in conversation with his book or that part is also erased? There are actually some lovely ways, I think, that sentiments in my book mirror beautiful sentiments in his book. I didn't read it first. So I was not responding to the written text as text. I was, I was using his, him for his body. So very much like, you know, a nude, uh, a female body for a painting. Um, but later I read the text. And even when I wasn't reading the text, when I was just using the material, I could see the poetry in the sentences. So I wasn't responding to the whole of what he was saying, but I do feel like it's there is a conversation, um, a sort of weirdly intimate conversation with Reed in some ways. So you said that when you started doing this, you were in a place where you had rage, you had all these feelings that needed to get out, but you were also having writer's block. So I'm wondering over the course of four years, if that changed for you. Yeah, the book really allowed me to articulate and to name nuances of things. And it's not like it's personal, right? It's it is personal. The book is absolutely personal. The story is personal, but it's not, I'm not telling my story. I'm telling, you know, a narrative that evolves out of the material. It's, it's informed by some things from my experience and the intricacies of the kinds of things that I'm able to voice through the text absolutely helped me to release some blocks uh, and also research that I did once I was starting the process, the, the project and like feeling like it was getting some traction. Uh, books I read, uh, women that I spoke with, men I spoke with. There's a number of essays that I want to write about my experience, like things that I learned. I, I feel like that almost, I don't want to jinx myself, but I feel like there could be a book that is stuff I learned writing this book. In the beginning of the book, so you have this beautiful graphic part, but you also have like traditional, like just text on a page. So you have her materials, her introduction, her apologia. And her apologia is probably the most traditional 
idea, what you think of when you think of poetry, it's kind of your explanation or your sharing of what was going on in your life and what led to you to this book. And you talk a little bit, you know, about that rage that you felt and you talk about that you had been experiencing chronic pain and you talk a little bit about violence and what's going on with gaslighting. And I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to talk about anything that you shared in there. I think gaslighting is so insidious and the word gets thrown around a lot. And the thing about gaslighting is you can't point to a single instance, right? If you point to a single instance, it poof, right? Disappears in gas and smoke. Like it's only when you look at the systemic patterns that you can start to see like, okay, this in itself could just be like, you are experiencing something here that was an intentional blah, 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 blah. But now you put all these things together. Um, it's like other aspects of systemic uh, oppression and uh, racism, misogyny. So I feel like art really has an important place in trying to paint these systemic pictures, like to get us to understand the experience of these systemic failures. And, you know, our job as the artists is to make this translation and draw whatever we can from our personal life. And it just so happened that, you know, I, I was also experiencing this prolonged debilitating uh, pain, which has gotten enormously better as I've gotten some diagnoses and have been able to make changes in my life. I had uh, been diagnosed with Crohn's and celiac. And so that has been a journey figuring out like how I can, you know, calm the inflammation down in my body so that I can move through the world with more ease. Um, and I think that this is a place we're at in our country where you know, we're, it's, we're very inflamed and for good, for good reason, because harm has been done and that's what the body does in order to get, um, you know, to, to, to tend to a wound, but inflammation can also be its own, uh, demon as that's, that's what an autoimmune disease is when you have the body attacking itself. And I feel like that's, you know, we're there right in this country um, and elsewhere and figuring out how to recognize who the self is and not attack it is our task now. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. 
Download the new Bumble now. Your very last lines, you write, Reader, it breaks. We are filled with faults. Here it is again. An embroidered wound. So, an embroidered wound. So, this book, in a way, is like this embroidered wound. Yeah, and hopefully the wound is healing. (laughs) You know, a wound goes through lots of ugliness. Sometimes it gets way uglier before it gets better. It was a pleasure to to bring the embroidery part that that word and that that physical tactile uh, embodiment, which also speaks to women's work, women's work that is dismissed often as not being, you know, art, but uh, a pastime, you know, for idle, privileged hands or uh, embroidery, other kinds of stitching, not necessarily, you know, stitching for necessity, um, making clothes or as a living um, is a different thing, but still often women's work. Can you read a passage from something that you've read by another author that influenced you as a writer? So partway into working, uh, maybe I was halfway through her read when I got a chance to meet up with a dear friend from my uh, youth, from my dancing days. And uh, this Erica Randall, who um, is a marvelous dancer and teacher. And she turned me on to Jeanette Winterson's book, Art Objects or Art Objects, Essays on Ecstasy and Ephrontry. And I love this book so much. I have come back to it. Um, And it was one that sort of I carried with me. This book and Elaine Scarry's Body and Pain were two books that really felt uh, intimately aligned with the work I was doing in her read. This is from her first essay in the collection called Art Objects. We hear a lot about the arrogance of the artist, but nothing about the arrogance of the audience. The audience who have not done the work, who have not taken any risks, whose life and livelihood are not bound up at every moment with what they are making, who have given no thought to the medium or the method, will glance up, flick through, chatter over the opening chords, then snap their fingers and walk away like some monstrous monstrous Roman tyrant. When you say this work has nothing to do with me, when you say this work is boring, pointless, silly, obscure, elitist, etc., you might be right because you are looking at a fad, or you might be wrong because the work falls so outside of the safety of your own experience that in order to keep your own world intact, you must deny the world of the painting. This denial of imaginative experience happens at a deeper level than our affirmation of our daily world. Every day in countless ways, you and I convince ourselves about ourselves. True art, when it happens to us, challenges the I that we are. A love parallel would be just. Falling in love challenges the reality to which we lay claim, part of the pleasure of love and part of its terror. A love parallel would be just. Falling in love challenges the reality to which we lay claim. Part of the pleasure of love and part of its terror is the world turning upside down. 
we want and we don't want the cutting edge, the upset, the new views. I think it's so interesting, this idea of the arrogance of the audience. And, and I think that bit about when you say this work is boring, pointless, silly, obscure, elitist, I kind of, I clung to this defense a little bit because as I was moving through the world with this weird erasure project that I had no idea how it would live if I could find a publisher, um, how I might get excerpts into the world. And, and people that actually champion my work and care about me were like, okay, but you're putting all this time into this project and how, you know, to what end? It, it felt emboldening and, um, and, and uh, like an embrace and also something I wanna think about because I think it's not just, I think even artists who love art sometimes are dismissing, right? Of work that they don't feel is about them. And, and we all have ways that we have to challenge who we are like at every stage, always as we're entering new texts. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So this comes toward the end, almost the very end. And I mentioned it a little bit, this it's playing with uh, Reed is talking about Tolstoy. We art to toy with feeling, transposing one kind of fear, one kind of love for another. We art to toy with memory, those plastic dreams, to fix in concrete, as if a kiss were anything but goodbye. As if to unknow the marble profile of goodbye. As if to return to the dream of the unborn calling and calling, and in the place the book is buried, plant a tree. Amen. Amen. We art to toy with alternatives by touch to cure, by love to infect, not a man speaking to men, but grief, grief and a patchwork spring, whereby we come to, we come to embroidery and sing. Do you want to say something about that? I will, I want to describe what's on the page next to the, so on the facing page, there's actually a pattern of an embroidery quilt. It was really felt wonderful to bring in that, again, that women's work. And it felt appropriate to also this, the Frankenstein, right? This idea of taking scraps um, and, and the conceit of this book, taking um, tattered bits and making something whole, something, a blanket. Um, something that can cover us, something that creates a visual scape as well as quilts do kind of a, you know, a kind of landscape. Um, and then on the page that I read, there is uh, a, a, a little sapling sort of thing growing out of um, what might be a very small planet. And this was written during the early stages of the pandemic. So the, the final bits of the book were drafted in between February and 
April of 2020 in terms of the, the language. And so that's something I was thinking about that grief is living there as well. Where do you write? Well, these days, um, we have been uh, living with my mother-in-law for a time. And so I have a funny little studio room, which is actually a linen closet with a lovely window off of a bathroom with what was supposed to be linen shelves that are filled with books. Um, it was kind of this magic little space that my husband and I are builders and uh, we designed this remodel for my, uh, for my in-laws. And this closet um, had a window put in it in order to balance out the architecture of the back of the house. And it was kind of this strange space that sort of arose and you know when years later we were going to move in um, and realized that this odd closet space that we had designed out of kind of necessity of various aesthetic elements were gonna was going to end up being a little private space that I could have and close the door um, it felt really like okay this is this is going to be a good spot to land for a while what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I do love to travel. That is sometimes even before the pandemic um, that requires time and finances. And um, so, but it's a love, it's lovely to find ways to travel, uh, whether it can be far away. Um, we also live in a beautiful part of the country in Northern Michigan. And there's big water there, uh, the Great Lakes. And it, it's so that is really spending time near the water is cleansing. I also love to make in other realms. Uh, I like to sew and to make different. I've become begun uh, venturing more into different kinds of visual art, um, collage type things. And uh, book binding. Um, so I like to have my hands and mind sort of occupy with, with making. And I design homes, which is a lovely um, different kind of thinking that I think feeds my writing in different ways. Um, yeah, so those are something. And spending time with family and friends and talking and being in conversation with other um, humans and writers and artists and um, the gardeners and those kinds of things are wonderful. I used to garden quite a bit, not so much these days. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, so there is a group of women that I am in conversation and with. Um, we've been gathering or meeting for several years. I don't always show work there. Um, sometimes these days, I, it really depends. I don't have a particular person that I send work to. Um, I don't show 
work as much as I used to as it's developing. I have been fortunate to meet many writers and be in conversation with them sometimes with long distance in between those conversations. So it might depend on who I happen to be in conversation with at the time and what their lives look like, who I might share something with. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, it's, it's tough. I think um, I tend to be a fairly resilient person. I came up in the art world in dance and dance in a time where so in the 80s and early 90s, you know, the critique, you're constantly getting critiqued and you're constantly like facing the mirror and auditioning and then performing. And then how did that performance go? Um, you know, it, it's very self-critical. Um, so I, I think I try to, I try to be mindful of my own boundaries and my own vulnerabilities when I'm putting work out into the world. And I think I've gotten better at that. And I also try to cling to voices that I trust that either books like the passages, like what I read from Jeanette Winterson or, you know, important mentor type people or friends that have shared that something I've wrote or made mattered to them or did some work in the world, kind of holding that as a light when I'm kind of in the dark is something I try to do and prepare myself, right? Like send out the work and be hopeful and then learn and like try to know the difference between like, okay, maybe there's something I haven't seen here. Let's listen to that voice. Um, or maybe sometimes occasionally I have felt that like, I know something is done. It just needs to find the right space or it's just not going to, you know, maybe somebody will find, find it when I'm dead or something like this. Um, but, and sometimes that changes. Like sometimes I'm like, this is done. I'm just ready. And then six months later, I'm like, oh, but you know, there's this heavy bitterness. You really got to break that up. You got to find a way to. So I think just being ever absorbent, but careful who you like, what your sponge gets next to. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? So I knew you were going to ask this question and it's a really tough one because I don't, I like words for the way that they work in the world. And I really tend to love um, Germanic words. I think words I can, that feel like something in the mouth. Um, but a word that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the word draft. And so I'm not going to say it's my favorite word, but I really love that the word draft is, um, you know, we use it, of course, as writers, like we go through multiple drafts and, and in construction, we talk about drafting, like, like I am currently uh, talking to you from a drafting table that I use for writing. And, but it's, you know, it's, 
it's used for drafting construction drawings and things like that. That's its intended purpose. Um, and the word draft means something drawn. So I like this idea of, you know, you could draw it from a cask, you could draw from a well. Um, we've got draft as in air drawn through um, a, a loosely constructed house, right? You know, be, you know, wear a sweater so you don't catch a chill from the draft. I like this idea of movement in all of these things that are sort of pointed to something bigger, like something caught from something bigger moving around us. Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it and for sharing about your book. Thank you, Mitzi. It's been really a joy to be here in conversation with you. Thanks again for tuning into First Draft with my guest today, Jennifer Sperry Steinorth, author of Her Read. If you like today's show, check out my interview with poet and essayist Sarah Manguso on her book, 300 Arguments, which contains short pieces from one line to 13 lines long and contains ideas the reader can linger on before moving on to the next argument. We talked about how although the book contains short pieces, they are not fragments. We talked about accumulation of content and swap meets. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Please write me. I love hearing from you. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. It counts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Richard Powers, Annie Murphy-Paul, and Alice McDermott. I want to send out a huge thank you again to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week, and that is the truth. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you so much for listening.